0: Hello, and welcome back to the podcast, The Wonderful Widows. It's Siobhan speaking here, and I've got Angela with me. And uh, on the last two podcasts, we've talked about Angela's and my experience of the death of our husbands, and um, the actual process of death and what that was like, and the aftermath. We're now um, going to be including some of the widows from the widows group, who are going to be talking about their experiences and how these differ from our own or a similar and actually everybody's is an individual experience. But firstly, I'm just going to talk a bit about the widows group.
1: Yes. Um, hi, everyone. Welcome back again. Um, as, as you probably heard in the last few podcasts, I was actually widowed um, 10 years ago now, so I was just 50. And um, at the time, I knew nobody that was widowed. And as wonderful as friends had been, I just needed to be with other widows. I just wanted to know how they felt, how they dealt with things, uh, all the feelings that I were feeling, was that normal? How was I going to cope in life? My whole future had been taken away. The anger that Simon had died when he was so young and there was nowhere to turn to. I I went to um, a group, um, but that felt wrong for some reason. It was a sort of, group that was segregated into districts and areas and i just wanted to know that there was people out there locally that i could turn to and a friend uh, of a friend introduced me to a wonderful lady who had been widowed at uh, the age of 48 with an 11 year old son and she was my rock for that first couple of years and i used to sit on her sofa and sob and say how have you survived and how will you ever be happy again um she was sort of at four years and said you will be happy again and um you will survive and i didn't really believe her and i thought i was so envious of her at four years and i was at four months but she just gave me the support and would sort of email me and contact me when it was valentine's days and christmases Mm. and it just just meant so much um and then she gave me the strength to reach out to others and gradually through work and through other people we I started to meet other widows and started meeting them for coffee and then I would get everyone together um, and that was quite a few years ago now so we're now I think um Siobhan and Andrea who's here who's going to be talking to us in a minute we're now part of that group um, and we have about 40 in the group mm. um, and various people have come through other friends through unexpected routes but everyone gives each other an enormous amount of support um and i think it 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 sounds it's a bit macabre isn't it going to widow support group but actually we have a really good laugh and it's quite a lot of black humor going on but there's also other little social groups which are developing within that group um and i know that you've both found it quite helpful
0: found it extremely helpful and I think you know we have got the black humour and that's absolutely great but uh, as well as that there's always the underlying support and love and care and attention yeah which has been I think it's been a great thing
1: absolutely
0: and 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 actually today we're going to welcome Andrea to this podcast Um, we try to um, include people from the group and Andrea's going to be talking about having lived with a husband who had a long-term illness with a sudden death. That's right, is it Andrea, it is. yes?
2: Yes, so Andrea here, yes. No, Niall was, um, Niall. Niall was 43 when he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Mm. Um, but by the time he was 51, he was already in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. It was a very virulent form of MS. So we had kind of very sort of up and down life really mm-hmm. for all those years and the children were quite young. So it was all very difficult because Once we knew he couldn't move very much, we obviously had to move house. And that, you know, the kids were very good. I mean, one of them, Patrick, went on holiday and we moved when he was away. So we came home to a completely different home. Right, yeah. Now, and I really felt that for them. Yes, Mm. yes. Because, in fact, the house that I picked was really um, for them because it had two large bedrooms and a whole wing that... Not a wing, but, you know, a centre, a part of the house for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it had a... I mean, unfortunately for Nile, just a garage that could be converted right. into a bedroom and a wet room. Yeah. Which we had done a bit... Pre- it, but he wasn't... He was using a Zimmer frame at that point and could still move up and down the stairs and put rails in. But within 18 months, he was in a wheelchair. So mm-hmm. we did the... We sort of preempted what was going to happen to him. Sure, you know, and then he needed carers full-time. And so that really curtailed, I suppose, our life then. Yeah. And that was after how many years of him <coughs> being diagnosed? Eight. Then? Eight years. Yeah. Mm. But every time that he had a relapse in every year, he would go down like a stone. Mm. It would be a huge drop in his mobility. And, I mean, I don't know how he did it. He walked up and stairs and walked with a zimmer frame with two completely numb legs. Gosh. you know, you really don't know how the human spirit no. can push itself so much. And presumably,
1: at that time, you were both you were both grieving. I for, think we for, were for yeah, a loss grieving of, for everything. Of, of everything. Like, yeah. know, it was
2: grieving before death. Yes, for
1: the life that we'd
2: lost. Because of course you do. And, and when you're in a, um, he was tall. He was six foot four. So his wheelchair was enormous, mm. and had to be yes. built for him. And it was heavy. Mm. Um, so when we went to friends' houses, he couldn't get in. No. So we had to have people around to us a lot, which was good. We I kept that going all the time. Mm-hmm. I think, but it's just, you're very tired because your brain is thinking all the time about where are we going, what loos there are, how can we get in, yes. you know, and all those sorts of things that were on my mind the whole time yes. of, of looking after him. So it's exhausting. Yes. It really is. And, you know, the boy, my we've got two sons, and they both stayed at home the whole time and never complained. And they were actually, they were only 26 and 28 when they finally moved out, after Niall had died. Right, right. Because I don't think they ever wanted to leave me. No, no. You know, they they really helped a lot with his movement and moving him around from sort of chair to bed and stuff like that. I mean, they went to university and came back. But... What you're, because he was young what you're restricted with with the care system is you know when in the evenings they want to put you into bed at Harper's mm-hmm. yeah. and kind of when you're 52 you don't want to go to bed at Harper's no. in the evening
1: no. you
2: do want to go out and do things so you know so I, we had to be
1: a unit to help him So your roles, in fact, actually changed from being sons and wife to actually all being carers. All being carers Mm. for him, yeah. Mm. And that's what we saw our role as. And at one
0: point, were you sort of thinking, right, okay, I wonder how
2: how many years he has? I I knew he would not be an old man. Mm -hmm. I kind of had in my head maybe 60s. Right. Mm. But in the last couple of years before he died, I could see the change and even more of it disintegration of his whole circulatory system and his whole body and he was just getting worn out you know bits and bobs i mean he still kept himself going we were very blessed with the fact that he worked for a very big american company and he was very high up in that company so it meant that they actually sort of invalided him out but still paid his wages through an insurance company so when he died he was still a employee right um and so from that perspective financially we were fine when he mm-hmm. had to give up work finally um, about not, only about 18 months before he died because he still kept on he, he kept on working with a charity called Telecom Sans Frontier a French charity yes. that sends yes. um, communication systems into war zones mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, natural disasters and stuff like that so he did an awful lot of PR and stuff mm-hmm. for them and still fundraising for them um, which is what you can do from your computer at home. You can Which must talk have to given people. him a sense of purpose Absolutely. as well. Because isn't he it? was very cerebral. Nile wasn't a physical man. So, in a way, I mean, losing your legs is terrible, not mm. being able to move. But he always thunk his way out of problems. Anyway, he was always like that. You know, he read a lot and thought a lot. Um, and he was, he was quite, I think, remarkable because he never, ever, ever complained. It was only two weeks before he died. Um, his hands were beginning to go. I could tell the difference in his hands, and so picking up the phone and doing things like that was getting difficult. Mm-hmm. And he just said, "You know, about two weeks before he died, I'm fed up." And that was the only time he'd ever talked about not even from the his initial, even diagnosis. From the initial diagnosis. He Gosh. never, ever complained ever. So he, he always it's very It's very he'd always sterical. find a positive side in everything. He was yeah. very positive. Thinker, and I think that maybe came from his parents Mm. because his mum and dad were both doctors. And they, his dad had been an alcoholic for a number of years, and so had his mum, but they had been sober. Well, sober alcoholics for the last 25 years. So he, as a child, had a very different upbringing to his brothers and sisters and lived with the one day at a time Mm -hmm. ever since he was about seven Mm. Mm. that philosophy was in him and he went to Al-Anon and Alateen and all those sorts of things he'd always been taken to therapy and with his mom talking to groups not that he was having it but just listening to the way that she would speak to Mm. lots and lots of groups and I think that really all those things kind of just sunk into him Mm. so he would never you know he never, ever would think about complaining. I was the one who'd bitterly bloody complain and kick the furniture and make <laughs> a big noise and moan a lot. It'd be me, not Nala calm down, girl, calm <laughs> down. <laughs> you know, it's not terrible. So but your I think, life had been changed irrevocably, Oh, absolutely, it, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's something that you just never regret. You know, yeah. Even I used to feel very sorry for him, even I used to have a group of um, women, and we used to go away to book club every year and... Because I went out mainly with women's groups and things. Um, and I used to drive him to Groombridge, which was like mm. a respite house. And bless him, you know, I used to leave him there. It was very lovely and they had lovely food and lovely grounds. But the other inmates who were also there on respite were all lovely old ladies in their 90s. Right. But you know what? He chatted away to them. He yeah. never bothered. He found them absolutely... Really interesting, Mm. and he, you know, he was there with a couple of women who worked for MI5, Mm. and these old birds in their nineties, and and got a lot of because he did Mm. history at university. He just loved talking to them, so he was a real. He everything
1: was his glass was half full. Mm. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, I wonder. only through my experiences with Simon when he was given the diagnosis I think I've mentioned this before he could sort of compartmentalize yes and it was it, it was that was in one box but the family was in another and work was in another whereas I don't know if I'm generalizing but women tend to be a little bit more yeah, uh, everything I is more, a bit more chaotic yes I would yeah. be definitely
2: running mm. around working out how to make it all fit yeah and I was don't
1: worry about it and did you find that hard that he wouldn't talk about his prognosis or no, he, the, the fact no, he, that he had a limited Yeah, he would. Life. Talk, he We did talk about it, but we never talked
2: about it really in very serious forms because no. we just muddled along. And I think when you muddle along, and he didn't really, he, he kind of stayed that same for about seven years, uh-huh. you know, going downhill. And then it was only the last really quite weeks of when he, he really went very downhill and then just went into hospital on Tuesday night with a bowel obstruction and died on Wednesday night.
0: It was a sudden death.
2: And it was a uh, very quick. In fact, he'd gone into hospital at 11pm 11 11 mm. and the doctors, they didn't, they were trying to, they just resuscitated him, but he actually, his heart stopped mm. at about 4am mm. and they resuscitated him and got him back. And then I think he was unconscious and he was going downhill. So that's when they phoned us to say, did he have a, a do not resuscitate? Right. And he did. Uh-huh. Right. But at that point, they said he, 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 he couldn't, you know, he couldn't respond. No. So that's when they called us to go into the hospital because it was during lockdown, of course. It wasn't right. in lockdown, it was in 21. So it was that aftermath where you still, you yeah. know, that's my awful vision of him. It's just waving at me from the back of the ambulance because I couldn't yeah. go with him. So was that the last time? Well, that's the last time he was actually conscious and looking at me, just waving,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, giving me a thumbs-up and waving that right. he'd be OK. Right, Gosh. Because I was trying to tell the nurses in the hospital to... Um, I said, oh, I, you know, I tried to get hold of them on the phone because they didn't really say very much. I said, well, if you give him his phone, he can phone me. And they said, he can't hold his phone.
1: Right. And I mean, not... oh,
2: I need to come... So, really, we need to come
1: into that na- now. And that must have been devastating for you, because that's all you had done. You'd cared for Niall for all those years. You were your, his loving wife, and not to be able to him and just
2: doing that. And then the the got the boys up, and we all went into the hospital. And um, they were very good. I mean, I did offer to take him home, but they wondered whether he might die in the ambulance, and just thought Mm. that was, you know, Mm. but they give us a room and they let as many people as we wanted into the room. So actually it was, it was okay. Yes, you know? yeah. As okay as it could be. It's okay as it's going to be. And, and you was, had your chance to say what... T- t- to and and I know that he could hear us when we got to casualty because he was, he was moving. Mm-hmm. When, yeah. You know, when I was talking to him. So, But then when we got to the room and they started the morphine, then he was... That was it.
0: Mm-hmm. So had he spoken about, he said he had a do not resuscitate thing. That We he talked had about a, it
2: for a few years before that. But had he talked about
0: his death and what that, you know, might not mean really. for you? Not really. So that was very similar again to very, Angela and yeah. similar to me, where you hadn't had I that think opportunity. He,
2: he, you know, he would have taken it as it came. We had the opportunity yeah. to talk about it. I mean, Nar was always a terrible... You know, I said, to me, we did talk about either cremation or burial or anything like that. You know, sometimes yep. we'd laugh and have a drink and talk about it. And we say, surprise me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that was not all. Yeah. He wasn't, yeah. He didn't really take it serious. Not, he did take it seriously, but it was just part of life. Mm, yeah. You know, it wasn't. And I think maybe when you live with that over your head and maybe he thought that he'd had some good years. Yes. You know, that he expected maybe to go earlier. I mean, he was only 59 when he died, so he yeah. wasn't old. No. Too young. But his body yeah. was absolutely buggered.
0: Yeah. i was just wondering, for you, when you when he became then seriously ill and you had that sort of 24-hour, just over that yeah. period, what, what happened to you at that point? Were you thinking, gosh, this is it, or yeah. you were? I did. I
2: thought about it. Because what had happened is he, um, he was just yeah. going to bed, Kieran and I were just putting him to bed and he just wanted to take a tablet, so he had a glass of water. And in fact, what he did was aspirate it and he couldn't cough enough to get it out. So mm-hmm. we were sort of hitting him on the back and that's when we thought, and eventually he did cough enough and was <laughs> breathing enough. And I, and then Kieran just said, I'm going to call an ambulance, Mum. And I said, yeah, and I think he's in a very bad way. He's mm-hmm. obviously, because his tummy was really giving him a lot of pain and it was bleeding a huge amount. Right. Yeah. So I kind of knew that there was something going on and I didn't know quite what it was. But when the ambulance men came, they did his temperature and everything, and they thought he had um, cold sepsis, which is, I think, what he did have. Right. So his, it, it, it's basically you have a huge abscess somewhere, uh-huh. but instead of being feverish, you go the other way. Your body's actually shutting down. Right. Yeah. So his temperature was only 35. Gosh. And his blood pressure was 80 over 40. Mm. And his body was just closing down. And so when they told me those things, I could really tell that, you know. But you think when they get to hospital, maybe they might be able to treat him. And, but I he kind of I kind of knew that, you know, he'd been fighting things. It's like the, the carers for weeks had been doing his physio. They were very good. And they kept saying to me, oh, his legs just, you know, the colour isn't great. No. And I kept saying to him, I think that's just the MS. It's just taking him a bit at a time, you know. But
0: so cruel. It was cruel. A cruel disease. It, was mm, a, it is mm, a cruel disease. Well, it, mm. it affects
2: people in so yeah. many different ways, yeah. and Nalda's had it very badly. And um, I think the awful thing, you know, what people say to you is, oh, you must be kind of relieved. Were you? Not at all. Not at no. all. You're never no. relieved because you you're not enjoying... You know, you look after them as that's what your life is. Yeah. I wasn't looking for another life. I wasn't, no. No. you know, it was till death us do part. I loved him to bits. I wasn't going yeah. to leave or wander off into the midnight air. Well, I'm going off now, Niall. I'm leaving mm. you to the... Look, fend for yourself, which his his great colleague at work, his her sister, her, that's what her husband did when she was diagnosed with MS. Mm. Just
1: yeah. left her. Right
2: and i think you always
1: child. you yeah, always no. hope that there's a little bit of hope don't you that there's going to be another miraculous you medical cure we went cure through a and, lot of um, we went
2: through a lot of he had a lot of chemotherapy he had every single um jab and god knows what for years hoping that one of them would work and we talked a lot to a doctor he had a very nice ms nurse um about new treatments coming up but actually he was he'd gone past that i think what really destroyed Niall was when we went to one of his um, follow-ups really the the neurologist couldn't wait to get us out of the room mm-hmm. because he knew there was nothing in his armory so we we're of absolutely no interest to him whatsoever no and now that's I think that was the time Niall really thought actually this is going to get me sooner than I think
1: yes yeah, yeah. because
2: they didn't have any there's nothing else they could do for him do you think in a once. way that he gave up at that point? Or? He did for a while, actually. Mm. But I think, again, living at home with both boys, mm. that kind of inspired him to go on and do more, you know, to keep going. Because right. mm. he was always a great mentor to them. Mm. You know, he was always very practical in their careers or helpful. And he was always doing like for our friends' children as well. And he was still Zooming and, you know... I mean, that's the thing about lockdown. For Niall, it was amazing. Because everyone... He he could stalk people to his heart's content and they were always at home. Yeah. You know? So that was... That was a good thing for him. And then when he
0: died and you knew that it was the end, you were there in the hospital with him?
2: Yeah, we were in the hospital.
0: So can you tell us a bit about what that was like and then what happened with you
2: afterwards? What... When, when he was dying, we went back in and he was... I knew he was dying because his lividity was awful. And um, I decided then that I didn't... I talked to the boys because I've seen so many people dying. Being a nurse, people have died in front of me for years yes. and years. And sometimes it can be quite gaspy and a quite, not, not an easy death. No. <clears throat> Some people have very hard deaths. So his brother and his sister-in-law had come and um, I just said to the boys I think we ought to go home and we'll just leave him with Uncle Chris his brother and so he died in the arms of his brother Mm -hmm. which was you know what his brother wanted and which was a nice way to sort of hand something to his brother because I didn't particularly want to see him die no yeah I left him asleep Yeah. yeah So that that's what I did yeah and yeah. I
1: think that's the, the, the also the reassuring thing for the boys isn't it that they were there to say they were it was to only to say goodbye but they didn't want to no. see him and it was only
2: about an hour later they phoned us to say he'd gone so we yeah. literally just got in yeah.
1: yeah
2: and he was in his brother's arms and his brother had you know got huge amounts from that mm. and it really helped Chris an awful lot to come yeah. to terms with, yeah. his, with, with his baby brother's death yeah. yes you know, because he was nine when Niall was born, so he was one of the first people to hold him when he was born, mm, yeah. and the last person to hold him when he died. Yeah. You know, so that was—it was very hard. But then you just go into overdrive, don't you? Because you have to get, you have to get yeah. home, and you have to do all the practical nonsense and stuff like that. I remember sleeping. He'd had a hospital bed downstairs, and I slept in that for about four nights you know, because mm. I couldn't not sleep in it. It's yeah. all those sort of things it's that all give you the comfort. Things. Yeah, yes. the, the clothes he had in hospital and then coming back to the bed and the boys would come in in the morning and they'd kind of, all three of us, would try and get onto the hospital bed. Oh. <laughs> Although it wasn't very easy to do that. But, you know, that's what you do. That's what yeah. you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. where we sat most of the time, talking to people and we had loads of people because we have been in Seven Oaks a long time. We mm. had masses of... God knows how much food was in the house, yes. you know, the, fridge and the fridge Something we've and talked about. Yes. Yes. Food, yeah, one food. more lasagna, and I think I'm going to burst. <laughs> you know, or one more shepherd's pie, or yeah. things like that. But yeah, it was. But it was just. And then, I mean, my his brother was actually really good because we were sitting there talking about the death and how it'd feel and everything. And he said, "Not only have I lost my husband, I've also lost my job." Yes, it's a carer. Yes. A carer. Mm. Yes. And what was what good was I now? Mm. What of what use could I possibly be? Mm. Where
0: my identity gone? Yeah. Yes.
2: Well, who am I? Yes. You know, and so that that really comes, you kind of wander about in a very lost state for a yes. long time. Yeah. I and think that's, that's what I was state, like for a lot yeah. for months yeah. actually, just kind of wandering around. Who am I?
1: Mm. What's my role?
2: What's my role? And 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 that I don't even think I found one yet
1: well Andrew you've yeah. done brilliantly to um, ex- to discuss all this I know you're visibly very emotional um, as we all are it's really hard to go over everything that you've been through and thank you so much for sharing it with us oh, I think thank it's you. basically we just have to do anything that gives us comfort
2: yeah, and I find the widows group that's what it has done so I think if you can find some people that you bond with because immediately, as you said, you walk into a room and you are at peace with people. Yes, yes. You know? And you know that you there's know something, that in they're, they're something in common. There's something in common. You don't want to don't
0: be in the group that everybody yeah, is, no, has something in common. you don't have common. to be. Yeah. You know, you can yeah.
2: be with as many people as you like. And in a group, you just find people that you bond with as Absolutely. well.
0: Yeah. You yeah. Yeah, you Absolutely. You do. Thank you so much, Andrea. Yes, thank you, Andrea.
1: Thank I you. you we're going to gonna have a talk. nice big glass of wine now, aren't we? yeah. Yeah, we deserve one. Definitely do. And thanks once again for listening in and uh, we will be joining you next time with another member of another our group. member of
0: the group, indeed.
1: All right. Go but, well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.